Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to missing persons detail. A ten-year-old boy disappears from his home in a remote section of the city. Two nights and two days pass. There's not a trace of the boy. Your job, find him. Friends, compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. You'll find a world of difference. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Quality of tobaccos. The finest domestic and Turkish varieties. Extra mild, superbly blended. To give you a much different, much better flavor and aroma. Quality of manufacture. Smooth, round, perfect cigarettes. Rolled in the finest paper money can buy. Manufactured in the newest and most modern of all cigarette factories. Quality. Even to the appearance of the bright, clean, golden yellow package. Carefully wrapped and sealed. To bring you Fatima's rich, fresh, extra mild flavor. So compare Fatima yourself today. You'll find Fatima's now cost the same as other long cigarettes. But your first puff will tell you... Ah, that's different. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Buy Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end... From crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, August 4th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Juvenile Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Inspector Bowling. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 2.25 p.m. when we got to Bowers Avenue, number 1218. Yes. Police officers, ma'am, we'd like to see Mr. Sherman. Oh, certainly, officers. Won't you come in? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Mrs. Keller from next door. I saw you around here yesterday. Yes, ma'am. Came over this morning to look after poor Mr. Sherman. Yes, ma'am. Well, how's he feeling today? Not too well. Fixed him some nice chicken broth for lunch, and then I helped him in his wheelchair and took him out in the backyard out in the sun. Good hot sun. It's wonderful for his legs. He has arthritis, you know. Yes, so we understand. wonder if we could talk to him, Miss Keller. Well, yes, I guess you have to. He's still out in the back sleeping in his chair last time I looked. Seems a shame to disturb him. Well, he called us at the office, said he wanted to see us as soon as we could make it out here. Was it about his grandson, Jimmy? They found him yet? No, ma'am. Searching parties combing the area. There's still no trace of the boy. Did any of the other officers who were out here covering the neighborhood talk to you, Miss Keller? Oh, yes. There was uh, Mr. Lorman, Detective Lorman. Yes, ma'am. I told him everything I knew about Jimmy's disappearance. It was right after dinner hour on Monday, about 6.30, last time I saw Jimmy. I see. I came out the side door to empty the garbage, and I saw Jimmy hiking up the side of the hill there, just in back of the house, all by himself. Nice boy. As far as you know, Mrs. Keller, Jimmy is Mr. Sherman's only living relative. That's right. His only relative, his only grandchild. Mm-hmm. Jimmy's mother and father were killed in an auto wreck. That was three or four years ago. Sherman's had a terrible lot of tragedy. Jimmy and his grandfather, they're the only ones left. You can't think of any reason why the boy would want to leave his grandfather, can you? None at all. Mr. Sherman's a wonderful man. Jimmy loved him, I knew that. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Keller! Mrs. Keller! Oh, it's Mr. Sherman, he's awake. We can go through the house out the back. Here. All right, ma'am. This way. Thank you. Go ahead, ma'am. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Visitors for you, Mr. Sherman. How are you feeling? All right, I suppose. Hello, Sergeant. How are you, Mr. Sherman? What about the boy? Have you found him yet? Well, nothing yet, Mr. Sherman. We've added more men to the searching party. We're doing everything we can. Gone two nights and two days. Tell me the truth, Sergeant. What's happened to the boy? Well, right now, we don't know any more about it than you do, sir, but that's no reason to give up hope. You told us yourself yesterday that Jimmy's been missing once before. It turned out all right that time. He wasn't gone for two nights and two days. Maybe you'll just say I'm old and I've got funny ideas, but I got a feeling, Sergeant, something's happened to Jimmy. Something's happened and I can't do anything about it. You just put those thoughts out of your head, Mr. Chairman. They're going to find Jimmy and it's going to be all right. Why don't you pull up those lawn chairs there, Sergeant? All right. I'm going to go in the house and fix some cold lemonade for you men. Well, thank you, ma'am. We got your phone message at the office, Mr. Sherman. Anything special you wanted to talk to us about? Yes, there was something. When you were talking to me yesterday... Yes, sir. I told you that Jimmy had on a brown jacket when he disappeared Monday night. Yeah. I was wrong, Sergeant. We found the jacket in his room. All he was wearing was a pair of blue jeans and this white sweatshirt. Do you think that might help any? Yes, sir, it might. We'll send out a supplementary description of his clothes, and we'll see that everybody's notified. Just wish I could be out there with a searching party. Arthritis is pretty bad today. Caught me at a terrible time. Don't know what I'd do if anything happened to the boy. I know we've asked you this before, Mr. Sherman, but can you think of any reason at all why your grandson would want to leave home? No, sir, no reason at all. Those two collie pups over there in the pen. Jimmy just bought them last week with his own money. Saved up to get them. I see. The boy's crazy about dogs. That's why I say he just wouldn't pick up and leave everything. Boy and me got along fine. No reason for it, Sergeant. Something's happened to the boy. I just got a feeling. Officer? Yes, ma'am? A telephone call for either one of you. I get it, Ben. I'll be right back. You're right. man said it was your office calling. Thank you, Miss Keller. Where's the uh, phone? Telephone straight back there in the hall. Thank you very much. Friday talking. This is Bowling, Joe. Just heard from the search party up at the hills. Oh, did they find something? Yeah, in the Elysian Park area by the upper reservoir. Uh-huh. Found a pair of kids' trousers right by the edge of the water. What kind of trousers? Blue jeans. Nothing in the pockets. They'll start dragging for a body as soon as they get the equipment. Check it out with a grandfather, huh? See if the boy was in the habit of hiking up there around the reservoir. Right. We'll call in just before we leave here. Right, Joe. Right, bye. Well, there's your lemonade, Sergeant. Just poured it for you. Nice and cold. Thank you, ma'am. What was it, Sergeant? Something about the boy? Well, nothing definite, no, sir. Just a report on the search party. They're still up in the Elysian Park area. Oh, I see. Did your grandson, Jimmy, do much hiking in that neighborhood up there, Mr. Sherman? Yes, I think he did. Likes to hike up there around the reservoir. Why? The name on the 316 report, Missing Juvenile, read James Philip Sherman, WMA, 10 years old. He lived with his 68-year-old grandfather, Oscar Sherman, in a small cottage in a sparsely populated section of the city. Shortly after 6 p.m. on Monday, the boy went outside to play. When darkness fell and he failed to return home, his crippled grandfather went out to look for him. Half an hour later, the neighbors joined in in the search. No sign of the boy. At 10 p.m., Juvenile Bureau was notified, and throughout the night, squads of men on foot and cruiser cars canvassed the area. A local broadcast and an all-points bulletin was gotten out on the boy. Neither the grandfather or the neighbors could find any reason for his disappearance. After almost 48 hours of continuous searching, the only lead we had was the pair of trousers found on the edge of the upper reservoir in Elysian Park. They were shown to the grandfather, but he failed to give positive identification. Dragging operations at the reservoir began immediately. Meantime, Ben and I, together with Lorman and Lopez from Homicide, checked out every possible lead on the missing youngster. One of the tips came from a Frank Grady, an unemployed carpenter who lived five blocks from the Sherman home. I don't know how much this may be worth to you, Sergeant. I don't want to get anybody into trouble, but I figured this is a pretty important thing. Well, what is it you want to tell us, Mr. Grady? Well, as I say, I don't want to get anybody in any trouble, but have you checked over everybody in this neighborhood? I think we've talked just about everybody in the area, don't you, Joe? Well, either us or the men from Homicide. Why do you ask, Grady? Well, there's a guy who lives down the street there, right down the corner from this house. 
old guy by the name of Gilby. What about him? As I say, I don't want to cause any trouble, but maybe you ought to double-check him. One thing, he's an ex-convict, I know that. Another thing, he hates everybody in the neighborhood. Hates the kids, too. Wouldn't be surprised if he was your man. Why do you say that, Grady? Does he have any special reason for disliking the Sherman boy? Oh, man, Gilby wouldn't need a reason. A real queer one. Say, I got a couple cans of cold beer in the icebox, and I fix you fellas up. No, no thank you very much. Just the same. What makes you think this Gilby had anything to do with the boy's disappearance, Mr. Grady? Well, number one, I saw old man Gilby out walking Monday night when the Sherman kid disappeared. Yeah? Saw him walking along the road up there. The same one that goes up by the reservoir. And I watched him. It was dark by the time he got back to his house. I'd check on him again if I were you. As far as you know, has Gilby ever been in trouble for bothering the kids in the neighborhood? Oh, Sergeant, he bothers everybody in the neighborhood. Real queer, lives by himself, always complaining about something. Frankly, I think he's your man. I think he took that kid and he did something to him. Well, do you have anything at all to back up your opinion? You dig around, you'll find something on him. He's no good and I'll bet on it. I've had a couple of run-ins with him myself. He just isn't any good, that's all. Well, all right, Grady. Thanks for the tip. We'll be sure and double-check on the man. You won't tell him where you got the tip, though, huh? Like I say, I've had run-ins with him before. It might cause trouble. No, he won't know where we got it. Thanks again. Okay, Sergeant. It's a pretty important thing. I didn't want to make anybody look bad, but the old man's just no good. Now, you understand that, don't you? Sure, Grady. We understand. <laughs> As a matter of routine, we double-checked on Grady's neighbor, uh, Mr. Harold Gilby. We found out that he had no jail record and that he had been at work on Monday from 3 to 11 p.m. He could have had no direct connection with the Sherman boy's disappearance, no more than Grady himself could have had. The so-called tip he'd offered us was like a hundred other phony leads in a hundred other cases. Spiteful, small-minded neighbors trying to use a tragic situation to work out their jealousies and prejudice on somebody that they didn't get along with in the neighborhood. The search continued. So did the hot weather. Friday, August 6th, no sign of the missing boy. The temperature climbed into the mid-90s. Dragging operations at the reservoir went on. Saturday, August 7th, more legwork, more hot weather. By noontime, Ben and I had run down the last lead we had on 10-year-old Jimmy Sherman. Went nowhere. 1 p.m., we headed back for the office to check with Inspector Bowling. These are the days when I wish I had a little swimming pool in my backyard. Sure be nice to go home to. Yeah, well, save your money. No, it doesn't cost so much. No, I read in a magazine where a fella built his own pool for $95.37. It can't be much of a pool, can it? Oh, yeah, it's good size. Of course, he did all his own labor. Had all his friends in to help out. Well, he must have had a lot of friends, didn't he? Yeah, he did after he finished the pool. Friday, Ben. Hi. Oh, hi, Skipper. How'd you two make out? Anything? No, no luck at all. It makes it unanimous. Did you hear about the old man, the boy's grandfather? No, what happened? I guess the strain got too much for him. He collapsed. They're moving him to a hospital. Oh, oh that's too bad. Right. Are men still up there dragging that reservoir? Finished this morning. Nothing. Well, how about the search party? Nothing there either, I suppose. No, not a trace of the boy. It's a blind alley all the way around. How about the APB, the radiogram? Had three replies so far. None of them panned out. You want to grab it? Juvenile Bureau of Bowling. Yeah, Fred. Mm-hmm. No good, huh? Yeah, all right. Check you later. I heard it once. I heard it 50 times. No trace of the boy. Got me, Skipper. Something real weird about the whole thing. Well, now, look. We know he didn't just disappear into thin air. Kid's gone. There's a good reason for it. There's got to be an answer somewhere. That's right. You'll find it. Another week passed, and then a month. Two months. We were no farther along than the day we started on the case. In November, we had a teletype from Chief Earl Eau Claire of the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department. Reportedly, the Sherman boy had been seen in Phoenix. It was another false alarm. The Christmas holidays wore on into a new year. February came and went. Then March and April. Tuesday, May 3rd, 1.40 p.m. Ben and I got a call to check in with Inspector Bowling. This telegram just came in from Dayton, Ohio. Have a look. Thank you. Let's see, Joe. What is it? Jimmy Sherman. They found him. Nine months had gone by almost to the day since the Sherman boy had disappeared. The grandfather was contacted immediately. When he was told his grandson had been found and that he was safe, the old man was unable to answer. He broke down and wept. 
In our communications with the Dayton, Ohio police, they told us that the boy had been found wandering along a highway just outside that city and that he'd appeared to be in a kind of a dazed condition. The boy told the Dayton officers that he'd been kidnapped a short distance from his home in Los Angeles by a man in a blue sedan. He gave them detailed descriptions of both the man and the car. He told them that for the past nine months, the man had held him prisoner, driving from state to state, never letting the boy out of his sight. He said the kidnapper told him on several occasions that he was holding him for ransom and that he was waiting to get money from his grandfather. On May 8th, the youngster was returned to Los Angeles and reunited with his grandfather. On May 10th, we got a call from the grandfather that he wanted to talk to us. Ben and I drove out to see him. Come right in, officers. Glad to see you. How are you, sir? Hi, Mr. Chairman. Sorry to cause you all this trouble chasing you out here like this. Not at all, sir. What is it you want to see us about? Well... I'm not really sure about it, Sergeant. That's the whole thing of it. I don't know if it's me or what it is. Well, what's bothering you, Mr. Chairman? It's the boy, Jimmy. I don't know what to think. Well, how do you mean, sir? He's all right, isn't he? We saw him as we drove up, playing out in the backyard, and the doctor checked him over, didn't No, he? It's, it's not that. The boy's healthy enough. Nothing wrong with him. Well, then what is it, sir? Maybe it sounds a little weird to you, but I'm just not sure. You're not sure of what? That boy out there, Sergeant. I'm not sure he's really my grandson. You are in the communications division of a Metropolitan Police Department, the teletype room. Forty-three LOS five twenty-nine fifty-one, twelve o three p.m. APB. WMA one fifty five foot six, dark hair, dark eyes, wearing gray suit, no hat. Suspect is wearing glasses. Heavy build, twenty-two years. Suspect is armed with blue steel revolver. Any information? Forward. You have just heard a teletype description of a suspect. This information will apply to many, but careful screening will eliminate all but one. You'll find the same is true when you examine king size cigarettes. Careful screening will eliminate all but Fatima. Compare Fatima. Fatimas are the same length as any other king-size cigarette, 85 millimeters. Fatima has the same circumference, one and one sixty-fourths inches around. And Fatima filters the smoke exactly the same long distance as other king-size cigarettes, but in Fatima, the difference is quality. Fatima gives you extra mildness, a much different, much better flavor and aroma. You get all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. So compare Fatima yourself. Your first puff will tell you... Ah, that's different. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Best of all, long cigarettes. Tuesday, May 10th, 2 p.m., when the aging grandfather, Oscar Sherman, told us that he wasn't sure whether the recovered boy was really his grandson, Ben and I didn't know what to think. Our first reaction was that the shock of recovering the boy after he'd almost been given up for lost had been too much for the old man. Mr. Sherman admitted that there was no physical difference in the boy as far as he could see, but he still insisted that there was something wrong, that the boy seemed different somehow. To satisfy the grandfather, Ben and I talked to the boy, but he failed to give us any reason to believe that he was not Jimmy Sherman. We checked with the boy's friends, all the people in the neighborhood who'd known Jimmy over a period of years. They confirmed our opinion. A few thought that the youngster had changed a little, but no one had any serious doubts about it. The boy was really Jimmy Sherman. So the matter was dropped. Thursday, May 12th, Ben and I had lunch, and then we checked back in at the office. Joe, want to grab that? Yeah, I'll get it. Juvenile Bureau, Friday. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How are you? I want you to come out and take this boy, Sergeant. He's not my grandson. I'm sure of it. Well, how do you mean, sir? This boy's got a scar on his side. He's had his appendix out. Yes, sir. My grandson never had an operation in his life. Before we left the office, Ben and I briefed Inspector Bowling on the phone call from the grandfather, then we drove back to the Sherman house. While Oscar Sherman didn't claim that he knew his grandson's complete medical history... He was certain that the boy had not had his appendix out and that he had not had an operation. He told us that his neighbor, Mrs. Keller, could substantiate that, that she had known Jimmy since he was a baby. 
We put in a call to the Sherman's family doctor. He wasn't in. We left a message, and then we went next door to see Mrs. Keller. We found her in the kitchen washing dishes. I just got a couple more to rinse. Can you wait a minute? Yes, correct. Of course we can. No, to tell you the truth, Sergeant, I just don't know what to think about Mr. Sherman. Maybe the whole thing was too much for him. His mind's going back on Well, to your knowledge, Mrs. Keller, was the boy ever operated on? No, not as far as I know. But it's possible he did have an operation. I didn't hear about it. Sergeant, as far as I'm concerned, that boy's Jimmy Sherman. I don't know what his grandfather's up to with all that silly talk. Well, if it's not really the boy, we won't have too much trouble finding the truth. There's no question in my mind. Of course it's Jimmy. Why, when he was over here the other day, he talked about the party I gave for him one Halloween. He even remembered the children who were there. Mm-hmm. Are the other neighbors as sure about the boy as you are? Just about. Miss Foster down the street, Jimmy was in to see her yesterday. He talked about some changes she'd made in her living room, asked her about some relatives she has living out of town. Mm-hmm. Come to think about it, Jimmy even remarked on that new trailer rose I planted out in front. Besides, as the boys' dogs, why, they knew that youngster the minute he set foot in the yard. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you very much, Mrs. Keller. If we have any more questions, we'll contact you, is that all right? All right, Sergeant. Couldn't fix you a cup of coffee, could I? Oh, oh no, thank you, Mr. Keller. time now. Poor old Mr. Sherman. I don't know what to make of it. He's so mixed up. Yes, ma'am. So are we. We left the neighbor, Mrs. Keller, and went back next door to the Sherman house. The grandfather told us that the family doctor hadn't returned our call yet. At 3.30 p.m., the boy came home from school, changed his clothes, and went out into the backyard to play. We figured we had nothing to lose in talking to the boy again. We found him in the small workshop at the rear of the garage where he was sawing on a piece of plywood with a hacksaw. We talked to him for about 20 minutes. It was no different than the first time we interviewed him. He was relaxed and talkative. Say, would you hand me that hammer there, officer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, here you go. Thanks. Well, if I ever get this thing finished, it's going to be the best coaster around here. These are the wheels I'm going to put on it. Pretty good, aren't they? Yeah, they look fine, son. Do you like building things, coasters and things like that? Oh, yeah, I like it all right. It's fun. Your granddad says you've changed quite a bit since you got back, Jim. Says you didn't like working around the shop here before. Well, I guess I don't really. You know, once in a while I like to come out and fool around. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you seen Mr. Barlow down the street since you've been back? Mr. Barlow? Um, No, I went down to see him, but he wasn't home. Maybe I'll go down and see him tomorrow. His name isn't Barlow, is it, Ben? I thought it was Robinson. Oh, yeah, that's right, Mr. Robinson. Sometimes I forget. How do you and your grandfather get along, Jim, all right? Sure, every once in a while, looks kind of funny at me. I don't know. I guess he's still worried about that man taking me away, you know, and all. Uh-huh. How you been feeling lately, Jim? Okay? Sure, I feel fine. Hardly ever get sick. That's good. You ever been in the hospital, son? Uh-huh, just once. Had my appendix out. I hate hospitals. Uh, can I have that can of nails there, please? Oh, yeah. Yeah, here you are. Gotta make this good and strong, you know. I'd like to ask you a question, son. Yeah? What's your real name? I'm Jimmy Sherman, you know that. No, I'd like to have the truth, son. Who are you? You must be fooling, officers. You know who I am. Jimmy Sherman. No, Jimmy Sherman never had his appendix out, son, but you did, and you've got a scar to prove it, haven't you? Sure, I had my appendix out. Ask my grandpa, he'll tell you. I'm afraid he won't, son. He says he's not your grandfather. He says you don't belong here. His grandson never had an operation in his life. How about it, son? You want to tell us about it? Oh, Grandpa isn't feeling well. He doesn't know what he's saying. Well, he knows you're not his grandson. Now, come on. What about it, son? All right. I'm not Jimmy Sherman. He told us his real name was Donald Rush. He said he'd run away from his home in Springfield, Ohio, two weeks before. He said that he'd been picked up by the police on a highway just on the outskirts of Dayton, Ohio. On returning the boy to the station, the police officer saw that he fitted the description of the missing California boy perfectly. It was almost as if the two were identical twins. 
Under the impression that the youngster was suffering from shock or amnesia, the police officers told him all about his home and his friends in California. They gave Donald Rush all the information that they had on the missing Sherman boy. All the newspaper stories, pictures, the dozens of teletypes and circulars which had been sent across the country in an effort to locate the missing youngster. On his way out to California on the train, the Rush boy was given dozens of newspapers to read which contained thousands of words concerning the disappearance of Jimmy Sherman. So by the time he got to Los Angeles, Donald Rush knew everything he had to know about the boy he was impersonating. We questioned the Ohio youngster further. Besides an exceptionally high IQ, he admitted to having an almost photographic memory. We took him in the house to face the grandfather of the boy that he'd been impersonating, the boy who was still missing. Mr. Sherman. Yes, Sergeant. Sit down, won't you? The boy here has a confession for you. He wants to tell you himself. I think I know. I was right all along, wasn't I, Sergeant? I didn't mean anything by it, mister. I just thought it'd be fun to make out like a somebody else for a while. You wouldn't know the difference, would you, Sergeant? No, sir, I'm afraid I wouldn't. That picture over there on the mantel and the boy here, they look exactly alike to me. There's only one thing I'd like to know, son. Yeah? Why'd you do it? Why'd you try and fool me? I don't know, mister. I ran away from home, and the cops picked me up near Dayton. They thought my name was Jimmy Sherman. They said I was a missing kid from California. Why didn't you straighten him out right then, son? I was kind of afraid, and if I told them what my real name was, they would have sent me back home. So I'd just let them think I was really Jimmy Sherman. They seemed to be pretty sure I was. How long did you think you could keep it up, son, pretending you were somebody else? I don't know. Guess I never thought much about that. I got here and everybody was nice to me. I just didn't think about anybody finding out. Honest, mister, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. And you never saw my grandson? You never saw Jimmy? No, sir. I just got on the train. They brought me out here. <laughs> you don't know where he is? You don't know how he is? All right, try to take it easy, Mr. Sherman. Why would you do it, boy? You're a stranger. Why would you try to fool me about Jimmy? I'm sorry, mister. I didn't mean it. Must I didn't mean it. <laughs> Thought I had him back. Thought I had him back. <laughs> Come on, Ben. Let's go, son. I didn't want to make him cry like that, Sergeant. Honest, I'm sorry. Couldn't you just let me stay here with him? No, I'm afraid not, son. I won't do anything wrong. Don't you think I could just stay here with him? I'll go right back in there now and tell him I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry too, youngster, but you're not the boy he's looking for. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On Wednesday, May 20th, a meeting was held at the Juvenile Bureau, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that meeting. And now here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. Friends, I hold in my hand a new pack of Fatimas. All I need to prove that Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. Now here on the side, you'll find this statement. Fatima contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. So tomorrow, buy a pack of Fatimas. I know you'll find that in Fatima, the difference is quality. Donald Rush, who impersonated missing 10-year-old Jimmy Sherman, was returned to the custody of his parents at their home in Springfield, Ohio. Four months later, the body of Jimmy Sherman was discovered buried on a farm on the outskirts of Riverside, California. The boy had been murdered. His killer, a farmer in the neighborhood, was subsequently apprehended and brought to trial. He was found guilty of murder in the first degree and was executed at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. <laughs> You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, is brought you Dragnet, portions transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counterspy, next over most NBC stations.
everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes. Best of all long cigarettes brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A wealthy society woman in your city vanishes. Two months pass before her disappearance is reported to the police. There's suspicion of foul play. Your job? Investigate. Webster's Dictionary. Definition of the word compare. Compare. Examine for purpose of discovering resemblance or difference. Now, let's compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. The resemblance. Fatimas are the same length as other king-size cigarettes, 85 millimeters. Fatima has the same circumference, one and one sixty-fourths inches around. And Fatima filters the smoke exactly the same long distance as other king-size cigarettes. The difference. In Fatima, the difference is quality. You see, Fatima contains the finest domestic and Turkish tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. You get all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality which no other king-size cigarette has. So compare Fatima yourself. Your first puff will tell you... Ah, that's different. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Buy Fatima. Best of all long cigarettes. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, February 8th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 11.23 a.m. when we got to the ninth floor of the medical dental building, room 912. Dr. Marston? Yes, what is it? Police officers, doctor. I'd like to talk to you. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Daydreaming, I guess. I didn't hear you come in. Well, my name's Friday, doctor. This is my partner, Sergeant Romero. How are you, doctor? How do you do, gentlemen? How do you do, sir? It's about the missing persons report on your wife. You filed it yesterday. Yes, that's right, Sergeant. Certainly glad you came. Like to have this whole thing straightened out as quickly as possible. I want my wife back with me. Well, we'll do everything we can, Doctor. There's a few things we'd like to have you straighten out for us, if you will. I thought I made it pretty clear in that report I filed yesterday. What is it you have a question about? I've got a copy of the report right here. It says, um, it says your wife disappeared December 9th. 
That's a little over two months ago, Doctor. Yes, that's correct. December 9th, Sunday night. We were out having dinner, we had a little argument, and Louise left. I didn't hear from her until the following Friday. That's when she wrote me the first letter. It was from New York. Weren't you a little alarmed to find out your wife had left you and gone east? Well, I wasn't too happy about it, but we'd had a few arguments before. Always figured it did both of us good if Louise got away for a little while. Uh No, I wasn't particularly worried. She has friends in New York. Uh, Would you care for a cigarette? Mm, Not right now. Thank you, Doctor. I've got a light for you. Thank you. I um, understand your wife didn't stay with her friends this trip, Doctor. No, apparently she didn't. However, I wasn't too concerned. She wrote me letters twice a week, and then she wrote Stanley. That's our son. He's in military school. Louise wrote to him regularly, too. Mm-hmm. And the last letter you got from your wife was uh, about two weeks ago. Yes, sir, exactly two weeks ago. I had the same postmark on it, New York. Well, have you any idea at all where she was staying back there? That's a strange part of it, Sergeant. Louise didn't put a return address on any of the letters. Mm-hmm. I inquired of some of our friends back there, but none of them had seen her. Well, I suppose she was staying at a hotel. I don't know which one, though. Well, about those letters, Doctor, now you're sure that they're in your wife's handwriting. You don't think they could be forgeries, do you? It's possible, but I don't think so, Sergeant. I know my wife's handwriting. Mm-hmm. Do you have all the letters with you, sir? Yes, I'll have my secretary get them before you leave. She's out to lunch now. Right. Oh, oh, excuse me, please. Right ahead. Yes, Dr. Marston. Well, Miss Taylor. Oh, yes, I'm glad you reminded me. Thank you. Sorry, officers. There's a denture I have to have ready for one of my patients by this afternoon. Would you mind if I go ahead and work on it while we talk here? No, it's perfectly all right, Doctor. You go right ahead. Do you mind stepping in the lab back here? All right, fine. Go ahead, man. I'm sorry to interrupt everything like this. I do have to have this denture ready, though. We understand, sir. Doctor, um, you say the night your wife Louise disappeared, the two of you had an argument? Yes, that's correct. We were having dinner out at our country club, and I guess Louise had too many cocktails. She gets in a nasty mood when she drinks too much. I asked her to stop drinking. She flared up and walked out of the place. Uh Did anyone besides yourself see her leave? Oh, yes, two or three couples, friends of ours. When I found out Louise had gone off to New York, I thought, well, it was her way of teaching me a lesson. I wasn't too disturbed about it until her letters stopped coming. Well, how about your son, Stanley? Do you know if he's still getting the letters from his mother? No, he's not. I telephoned him up at his school. He stopped getting letters about the same time I did. Well, let's see. Where did I put that casting ring? Oh, yes, here we are. Then, uh, as far as you know, Doctor, no one at all has actually seen your wife since that night at the country club when she walked out and left you. Mm-hmm. That's correct. As I say, if I hadn't been getting those letters from her every week from New York, I would have called the police in long ago. Would you excuse me, please? Oh, oh, yeah. Quite a bit of oxide in this gold crown I've cast here. A little bit of acid should take care of that. Well, what's your theory on all this, Doctor? Your wife leaves suddenly and she goes to New York. She corresponds with you and your son, and then her letters stop coming. What do you think might have happened? Well, frankly, Sergeant, the whole thing's a terrible family mix-up. Get this crown here out of the acid. Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, um, how do you mean, Doctor, a family mix-up? Well, just that. There's only one reason for Louise disappearing the way she has. Money. Money and that stepfather of hers. Say, uh, would you switch on that small motor there, Sergeant? I've got to polish up this crown and get it in shape. Oh, yeah. Sure. Thank you. Well, what do you mean, Doctor? How does your wife's stepfather fit into all this? Money mad. It's about the size of it. I don't know if you're aware of it, but my wife Louise was left a considerable amount of money by her aunt. Uh Uh-huh. Well, it was a fortune, as a matter of fact. Louise's stepfather has always been trying to get his hands on it. Excuse me again. Sure, go ahead. Well, and you think your wife's stepfather is responsible for her disappearance, is that right? Oh, I'm not making any direct accusations, Sergeant. But two days ago, or two days before Louise disappeared, I had $80,000 in bonds signed over to her. Checked around since she's been gone. Haven't been able to locate the bonds anywhere. You think she had the bonds with her when she left? Guess I'm sure of it. Pardon me just a moment. Yes, go ahead. 
a fine cast with sharp margins on it. Well, now, the $80,000 worth of bonds, Doctor, do you have any way of proving that you gave those to your wife? Oh, certainly. I have my wife signed a receipt for them. You're welcome to check it over if you like. Mm-hmm. Just how do you think your wife's stepfather figures in there? Is there any indication he might have made a move to get the bonds? Enough to satisfy me, yes. My secretary told me about it, Lenore Dexter. That's the girl in the reception room. Oh, well, huh? The night after my wife left me at the country club, that would be December 10th, Miss Dexter was at the airport waiting for a friend to arrive on a plane. While she was waiting, she saw my wife and her stepfather cross through the waiting room and go out toward the main gate. Mm-hmm. Your secretary's sure it was really your wife and her stepfather? Well, that's what she told me. You're certainly welcome to talk to her yourself, if you like. Yes, and well... Now, besides the bonds, do you know of anything else of value that your wife had with her when she left? No, I don't think so. She had her fur coat on, of course. It's expensive. She was wearing a diamond ring, anniversary gift for me, large, solitaire, worth quite a bit of money. You can get the description from the jeweler. I'll give you his name. All right, Doctor. Your wife's stepfather, we'd like to have his name and address, too. Surely, I'll have my secretary check on both of them right now. All right, fine. Sergeant, you've got to find Louise. I've got to have her back with me. Well, we'll do everything we can, Doctor. We promise you that. I know my wife wouldn't stay away of her own free will, not this long, not at a time like this. How do you mean, sir? Well, let me show you. Uh-huh, here it is. This is the final drawing the architect made for us. What do you think of it? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah, it certainly is. It's got to be our own building. Twelve stories, finest in the city. Uh-huh. Robert A. Marston building for professional men. Louise and I have looked forward to it for a long time. I understand. We settled on the final plans a week before she disappeared. Contractors will start construction in a few weeks now. There's supposed to be a great day in our lives, laying the cornerstone. Yes, I understand. Great day. Robert A. Marston building. <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it, officers? How's that? Nothing's very great unless there's somebody to share it with. Before we left the office of Dr. Robert Marston, we talked with his secretary, Miss Lenore Dexter. She confirmed the doctor's statement that on the night after Louise Marston had disappeared from the country club, she had seen both Mrs. Marston and her stepfather at the city's international airport. She said she did not follow them. She had no idea of their destination. Dr. Marston gave us the letters his wife had written him during her absence and also his wife's signed receipt for the $80,000 worth of bonds. Each of the letters was postmarked New York, and the dates on them ranged from December 15th to March 24th. Well, Ben and I drove back to the office and put in a call to the home of the missing woman's stepfather, a Mr. William House. Then we went down the hall to the office of Don Meyer, our handwriting expert. We gave him the letters, which supposedly had been written by Mrs. Marston from New York, along with a signed receipt for the bonds and various other exemplars of her handwriting, which we had obtained from her bank. 2.50 p.m., the missing woman's stepfather, William House, arrived at the office. He was a tall, graying man, dignified, well-dressed. It's about time the police started looking into this thing. How long does a person have to be missing before there's an investigation? The missing report was only filed yesterday, Mr. House. If you knew your stepdaughter was gone, why didn't you report it? I've had private detectives working on this for a month. Had them checking everything about the case. How much luck have they had? Frankly, not much. I still got them working on it. Well, getting back to what we have on hand, Mr. House, how about this statement of Dr. Marston's secretary? She says that she saw you with Mrs. Marston at the International Airport the night after she disappeared. It's a lie. I haven't been near that airport in six months. It's a lie, and I can prove it. I don't know what Marston's up to, but he isn't going to get away with it. What do you mean by that, sir? I think he's murdered Louise. I think he killed her and buried her somewhere. That's my honest opinion. You sound sure of it. I am sure of it. I knew Marston for what he was the day I met him. He's a fortune hunter, pure and simple. He's after Louise's money and nothing's going to stop him. Nothing has stopped him. Well, I was under the impression that Dr. Marston was wealthy before he married your stepdaughter. Isn't that right? Certainly not. He was just another poor dentist with a lot of big ideas. All this talk about putting up a building, naming it after himself. Why, Louise fought him on that constantly. He's some kind of crazy egotist. Well, what about the $80,000 in bonds he says he signed over to Mrs. Marston? If he told you that, he's a bigger liar than I thought. Well, he gave us a receipt for the bonds. It was signed by his wife. Can you account for that? Frankly, no. Either he got her signature on it by some kind of trick or he forged it. I'm sure he never had that much money. Those bonds belong to Louise. 
What about the letters Dr. Marston got from his wife? You think they were forged, too? I'm positive they were. Don't you see, officer? It's the perfect cover-up for it. Well, one way or the other, it's not going to take us long to find out the truth. Our handwriting man's checking over the letters and the bond receipt now. Can you fill us in at all on Dr. Marston's background, Mr. House? Only since he's been connected with the family, since he married Louise. Say, would you give me a cigarette, please? I went off and left mine at home. Oh, sure. Here you are. Thank you. Thank you. I can't tell you how I feel about it, officer. I'm afraid of that man. I'm deathly afraid of him. I know he's done something terrible to Louise. Well, how can you be so sure of it, Mr. House? You must have some basis for your opinion. I just know that's all, Sergeant. If Louise had just disappeared and there wasn't any question of money involved, I wouldn't be so anxious about it. But $80,000 worth of bonds, that would be enough to tempt Marston to murder his own mother. You don't know him like I do. Well, what do you know about him, sir? There must be something concrete. I can tell you this much, officer. Marston's a man who is capable of murder. Now, I'm a sensible man. I don't walk up and down the street looking for murderers. But I know when we've got one in the family, that much you've got to believe. You will believe it. Well, sir, excuse me just a minute. I'll get that. Homicide, Friday. Yeah, Don. All right? All of them? Right. Thank you, Don. Well, that was our handwriting man, Mr. House. Yes? He just finished checking the writing in those letters and on the receipt for the bonds. What did he say? Forgeries? No, sir. They're genuine. Every one of them. As soon as William House left the office, Ben and I began an immediate check of his whereabouts the night after his stepdaughter, Louise Marston, had disappeared. We talked to his friends and associates, members of the staff at the club where he lived. We found a dozen people who backed up House's claim that he was nowhere in the vicinity of the airport the night after Mrs. Marston dropped from sight. We went back and talked with Dr. Marston's secretary, Lenore Dexter. She still insisted that she had actually seen House at the airport with the missing woman. Dr. Marston and the stepfather continued to accuse each other of murder. At our request, repeated efforts were made by the New York police to locate Mrs. Marston. No luck. We checked and rechecked with the maid at the home of the missing woman. All she could tell us was that Louise Marston never returned home after leaving the country club, and also that she'd been wearing a fur coat and an expensive diamond solitaire ring. A week passed, and then two weeks. We stayed on it, but there wasn't much progress. The case of Louise Marston came to a virtual standstill. Wednesday, February 24th. Hi, Jill. Morning. Anything new? Yeah, I think we got a break. The Marston case? Oh, what do you got? Made out of Dr. Marston's home. She called first thing this morning. Said Dr. Marston had a little dinner party out there last night. What about it? One of the people there was Marston's secretary, that uh, Lenore Dexter. Oh, yeah. She was wearing a large diamond ring. Yeah? Maid got a good look at the ring. Mm Mm-hmm. Says it's the same one Mrs. Marston was wearing the night she disappeared. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic cases from official police files. Now, let's look at our Fatima files. Listed under B. Borden, Mrs. Clay Borden of Palm Springs in San Francisco. She says... Pleasing, distinctive, and really extra mild. That's the way I'd describe Fatima. It's definitely the best long cigarette. Friends, more smokers now insist on Fatima than ever before. Because in Fatima, the difference is quality. Quality of tobaccos. The finest domestic and Turkish varieties. Extra mild. Superbly blended to give you a much different, much better flavor and aroma. Quality of manufacture. Smooth, round, perfect cigarettes. Rolled in the finest paper money can buy. Manufactured in the newest and most modern of all cigarette factories. Quality, even to the appearance of the bright, clean, gold and yellow package. Remember, Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality which no other king-size cigarette has. So if you smoke a king-size cigarette, compare Fatima. You'll find they now cost the same. But your first puff will tell you... Ah, that's different. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Wednesday, February 25th. 
Wednesday, February 24th, 9.15 a.m. Ben and I drove out to the home of Dr. Robert Marston and talked to the maid. She told us that on the previous evening, the doctor had had a small dinner party and that one of the guests was the doctor's secretary, Lenore Dexter. The maid told us that she'd gotten a close look at the diamond ring that Miss Dexter was wearing and that she was sure it was the same ring that the doctor's wife, Louise Marston, had been wearing the night she disappeared. 10.20 a.m. We left the Marston house and headed downtown to the doctor's office in the medical dental building. The office was closed and locked. We got back in the car and drove out Sunset Boulevard to Lenore Dexter's home address. We found the secretary having breakfast alone in her two-room apartment. She explained that on Wednesdays, the doctor never opened his office before noon. We questioned her about the dinner party at the doctor's home the night before. We asked her about the diamond ring that she wore at the party. She became confused and hesitant. Well, what about it, Miss Dexter? Was that your diamond ring you were wearing at the dinner party? No, Sergeant, it wasn't. I guess it belongs to Dr. Marston, either him or his wife. Well, did he give it to you as a present? No. You see, I guess the doctor had a few cocktails before dinner. Maybe one too many. He went upstairs and came down with a ring. He insisted I wear it. He was very insistent. Uh I didn't want to make a scene, so I put the ring on. I gave it back to the doctor just before we left the house. My boyfriend was with me at the party. We had a terrible argument over it. He's very jealous. Tell me, Miss Dexter, did Dr. Marston have any special reason for wanting you to wear the ring? No. Just that he liked me and that I was pretty and I ought to have pretty things. My boyfriend didn't like him at all. Well, had you ever seen that particular diamond ring, Miss Dexter? I mean, before last night? Well, I don't know, Sergeant. I think so. I'm not sure. Well, where do you think you saw the ring before? Mrs. Marston. I think I saw her wearing it once. Was she wearing it the night you were supposed to have seen her at the airport? I don't know what you mean. I didn't notice the ring, but I saw Mrs. Marston at the airport. I'd like to have you think this thing out for yourself, Miss Dexter. Mrs. Marston's been gone for almost three months now, and there's a strong possibility that she might have been murdered. You can make up your own mind about it, miss. If you're not involved in that disappearance, I'd advise you to tell us the truth. Might save you a lot of trouble. Miss Dexter? You mean about my seeing Mr. House at the airport with the doctor's wife the night after she disappeared? Yes, ma'am, that's right. You sure that's the truth? I didn't want to get involved, Sergeant. I didn't want any part of it. You mean you didn't see Mrs. Marston and her stepfather at the airport that night that you made it all up? I didn't make it up, Sergeant. I swear I didn't. He told me what to say. He said to do it as a favor for him. Who's that, miss? Dr. Marston. We continued to question the secretary, Lenore Dexter. She confessed that Dr. Marston had directed her to tell the story about seeing Louise Marston and her stepfather, William House, at the International Airport. It was all a complete lie. She said that Marston had explained that the whole thing was just a practical joke, that it didn't mean anything. When Mrs. Marston was officially reported missing, she thought of going to the police, but Marston had frightened her out of taking any such action. The only other suspicious thing she could recall about Mrs. Marston's disappearance was a conversation between the doctor and his architect, a Mr. Harold Whitmore. He was the architect who had planned and designed the projected Robert A. Marston building for professional men. Well, the secretary told us the doctor's conversation with the architect had taken place about a month before Mrs. Marston's disappearance and that she'd heard the doctor mention to the architect something about New York and a packet of letters. Lenore Dexter was taken downtown where she gave us a complete signed statement. Ben and I got in the car and drove to the offices of architect Harold Whitmore over on South Hope Street. He was a tall, florid-faced man, very cooperative. Yeah, I remember that conversation with Dr. Marston. He gave me a bunch of letters, at least a couple of dozen anyway. They were addressed to the doctor and his little boy, Stanley. What do you want you to do with the letters, Mr. Whitmore? He asked me if I had any friends in New York, and I said I did. Then he said he was playing some kind of practical joke on his wife and son. He gave me the letters and asked me if I'd send them to a friend in New York and have him mail them back one at a time. You agreed to do that? Yeah, that's right. The letters were all sealed and stamped, all in order, the way they were supposed to be mailed. I just sent him back to this friend of mine, Bob Rogers, in New York. Forgot all about it. Mm-hmm. Mr. Whitmore, how long have you known Dr. Marston? Very long? No, not too long. Only in a business way. He wants to put up this office building of his, and I'm handling the job for him. He's sure nuts on the subject. Can't wait till we start construction on the job. I think his life depended on it. You know much about his personal life? Where'd you first meet him? Let's see. I think it was around October of last year. He and Mrs. Marston were building a summer place down at Malibu, and I helped out with the plans. The doctor was always hanging around there, helping out with the work whenever he could. Uh-huh. And that's the only previous contact that you had with him, huh? And that's about all, yeah, building the beach house. 
Dr. Marston thought he had some new ideas about building a new type basement in the place. That's so? Yeah, not a bad job on a cellar for an amateur. Used enough cement on it to sink a battleship. Now, just a second, Mr. Whitmore. Did Dr. Marston cement in the basement while the house was being built? Is that... No, no. About a couple of months later, around the middle of December, I think. Do you remember the date exactly when he did the cement work? Mm, not exactly. About the 12th or 13th of December, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right after his wife disappeared. Wednesday, February 24th, 1.30 p.m. Ben and I picked up Dr. Robert Marston and brought him downtown to the office. We questioned him for an hour and informed him of the evidence against him. Despite the statement of architect Harold Whitmore, the doctor insisted he was innocent of any crime connected with the disappearance of his wife. We contacted the New York Police Department and asked them to check on architect Whitmore's friend, Robert E. Rogers. A special detail of men was dispatched to the summer home at Malibu to see what they could find. Half an hour later, Dr. Robert Marston was placed in a car and Ben and I drove him to the Malibu home. We continued questioning him during the drive, but he refused to make a statement of any kind. On our arrival at the beach cottage, we found Marston's young son, Stanley, together with a maid and the family butler. We took Dr. Marston downstairs to the basement. The man had a large section of the cement flooring ripped up. They were digging. In the room up above, we could hear young Stanley Marston playing on a toy harmonica. I'd like to know something, Sergeant, just for my information. Yes, sir? Why do you think I'd kill my wife? Why do you think I'd do such a thing? We're not sure yet if you did kill her. And why do you have these men doing this? Digging up the whole basement. Why do you think I killed her? You won't find anything. You might as well tell them to stop now. They won't find anything. I explained everything to you. Why can't you take my word for it? Well, you still haven't explained about those letters, why you had them sent to New York, why you had them mailed back here one at a time. Got nothing to do with it. Why can't you believe me? Your wife didn't disappear without a reason, Doctor, and we'd like to know what the reason is. I told you. I told you a dozen times over. You know what happened. We were at the country club, Louise and I. She was drinking a lot. I told her to lay off. We had an argument. She walked out. That's all. She walked out, I didn't see her anymore. Yes, sir, we'll have it all worked out. Don't worry about it. Why can't that maid look after the boy up there? Making all that noise, why can't you take him out somewhere down to the beach? Romero? Yeah? I'll see you a minute. Oh, yeah, all right. Sergeant, what do you want me to say? What's that? They've found her, you know that. Louise, right where I buried her. What do you want me to say? Well, that's up to you. Yes, you wouldn't understand, would you, Sergeant? The only thing I ever wanted in my life. She wouldn't let me have it. The building. Robert A. Marston building. For professional men. You mean your wife wouldn't give you the money for it? That's why you quarreled, is that it? I tried to tell her. It was one fight after another. She didn't know how much it meant to me. And that's why you killed her, huh? I followed her outside the country club that night. Drove her to my office. She was pretty drunk. Mm-hmm. We pretended she was on a trip to New York. I had her write the letters, had her sign the receipt for the bonds. Wasn't hard to do. How'd you kill her? Put my hands around her throat. Didn't stop until she was dead. Joe? Yeah, man. Hey, Father. You ready to go, Doctor? All right. It was a dream of a lifetime, Sergeant. I almost had it. The Robert A. Marston building. Finest in the city. Yeah. You want to come upstairs, Doctor? We'll get your coat. You'll try to understand, won't you? I wanted something that would last. My own building. My name on it. Something you'd remember. Yeah. That's the reason I killed Louise. She didn't want me to have it. My own building. Something that would last. Make the people remember. Well, you made it, Doctor. Why worry? What? You don't need a building. They'll remember you. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 3rd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. Friends, our latest sales figures indicate that Fatima is undoubtedly the fastest-growing long cigarette in the country. And I'm sure you'll agree that there must be a sound reason for Fatima's ever-increasing popularity. Well, to my way of thinking... That reason can be summed up in just two words. Fatima quality. You'll spot it instantly. Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. So tomorrow, buy a pack of Fatimas and prove to yourself 
that the difference is quality. Robert Alexander Marston was charged with murder in the first degree. Ten days after his trial opened in Superior Court, the suspect took his own life in his jail cell by hanging. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days, your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.